0: Hello, you're listening to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Neurodescent Podcast. I'm Nick Sutterellu. I'm a neurodivergent scholar, writer, and social theorist.
1: And I'm Molly Friesenberg. I am a non-professional working in youth development and social justice, and I happen to be married to this guy.
0: So together, Molly and I, uh, in our first season, we are exploring mental health through What I hope is a really intriguing angle. We're talking about demons, demonic possession, and other similar spiritual things that are supposed to affect our minds. Um, And the reason for this topic is that I want to explore a world before psychiatry, when people understood the body, mind, and the possible afflictions that affect us differently.
1: AKA, it's totally reasonable if this stuff is hard to wrap your brain around.
0: (laughs) Okay, so... Um, part of, part of my inspiration for this, uh, for this topic, it comes from the philosopher Michel Foucault. Um, and, uh, in his book, madness and civilization, which I already talked about in the first episode, but I'm going to talk about it again. He, he has this quote that I want to read, um, in the serene world of mental illness, modern man no longer communicates with the madman as for a common language between mad people and sane people there is no such thing, or rather, there is no such thing any longer. The language of psychiatry, which is a monologue of reason about madness, has been established only on the basis of such
1: a silence. So we're kind of accepting the basis for this discussion that currently we are not directly communicating with people experiencing mental health issues, and we want to look at whether or not That's how it's Mm -hmm. always been.
0: So like the language of psychiatry does not encourage us to take seriously the things people who are neurodivergent or mad um, that they say, right? We we dismiss
1: them. And if you're feeling uncomfortable with the term mad, go back to episode one.
0: So, um, the idea here is that if we go back in time, like Foucault suggests, and like he does in his work, too, um, we should be able to find a discarded way of communicating between mad people and others. And it's not necessarily going to be a perfect form of communication, as we've already seen, but um, the point is... What?
1: Humans aren't perfectly communicating? Yeah, right.
0: Weird. (laughs) Weird. But, nonetheless, it seems like the idea of demonic possession is, is an idea that has been, to some extent, discarded by at least modern institutions. It's certainly not totally discarded in our time period. Um, but anyway, if we look at this historical evidence of how people dealt with demonic possession, we might find a way of seeing madness that takes madness seriously and actually listens to it. So I want to explore that possibility with all, all of the episodes in this season.
1: All right, so we started with Hippocrates in That's Ancient right. Greece, where are we going today? Yeah,
0: so we talked about Hippocrates and the god Asclepius. Um, Whose we, name is hard to say. Yeah, right, I said it wrong in the last uh, <laughs> in the last episode too. Um, anyway, <clears throat> we saw that to a large extent, the Hippocratic tradition, the Hippocropacy, they're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're skeptical of what we might call supernatural causes of disease. Um, but nonetheless, the followers of, followers of Asclepius clearly saw him as a healing god, and they asked him to heal them through seeking out cures from physicians or at those Asclepius uh, sanctuaries that we talked about. So Asclepius was the healing god of choice in ancient Rome and Greece, um, at least until this new competitor arrived that we're going to talk about. And that competitor was Jesus Christ and his many followers and biographers. I
1: see. Okay. So really, no big competition until Jesus comes along. Everyone's still rocking and rolling with those, with the Hippocrofasi and Asclepia temples.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the point I want to stress here is that the cult of Asclepius um, and those temples are still around, and they are perhaps the top healing gods in the Roman Sphere.
1: Got it. Okay. And like um, the temples, like people are still going, getting their opiates, getting their surgery. Yep.
0: Exactly. All right. That's what's happening. So um, how do you feel about talking about Jesus Christ? What do you know about him?
1: It feels like a very loaded question. Oh yeah? Um,
0: It's really just a pedagogical one. Tell me what you already know. <laughs> well,
1: um, yeah, it still feels loaded. But um, he was a person who preached um acceptance of all and was anti-capitalist really and um all about um taking care of the least among us and that's the more facts of life part and then we have the whole supernatural what speaking of loaded but anyways um yeah yeah supernatural
0: Supernatural is definitely a term like from our perspective, right? Like from our historical perspective, we think X is is a supernatural thing, but other people might think it's natural, right? Cause they believe that it's real. Um, <clears throat> but also I wanted to pick up on the thing you said about caring about the least among us, because that's, I think really important here. I mean, if we're talking about the idea that we're looking for evidence of people who are taking mad people seriously, that's really important. And I think that is, uh, that's going to be something we see in our discussion of Jesus. Um, but just like with Hippocrates, it's really difficult to find a lot of verifiable facts about the life of the man Jesus Christ. Um, we have no writings from him directly, and much of what we do know about him comes from writings that were written down you know, a generation or two after he was dead. Um, the, the biggest source of information about him is the canonical gospels, the the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, They're some of the earliest surviving documents about him.
1: Okay, so I I don't have a cool name like Apocoposy but I guess that's, they've already been named the disciples and whatnot, so I don't need to rename them. Got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that is most striking when we look at the gospels, uh, when we look at the Jesus in the gospels is how much the gospels portray Jesus as being a healer, and this includes things that we today would call mental illness. Yeah. Um, so, theologian Chris Mannis has a very interesting um, observation about Jesus, uh, about the Gospels and healing. He writes, "There are three thousand seven hundred and seventy nine verses altogether in the four Gospels. A prodigious seven hundred and twenty seven verses." are devoted to the narration of Jesus's healing of physical and mental diseases and the resurrection of dead persons. For his earliest followers, Jesus was a messianic healer par excellence. So that's roughly, according to Manus, about 20% of the Gospels are devoted to talking about Jesus healing.
1: It's interesting because it's it's not that I didn't know Jesus was a healer, right? It's not that I didn't like... I can't come up with examples of that store of stories of that. I can, mm-hmm. but it's still not where he like predominantly sits in my mind. Right. Like right. I, when I think about not that I, I grew up, you know, culturally Christian, even though I was never, um, you know, regular uh, Bible study attendee, mm-hmm. but um, that still never seems to be what is highlighted. Like, even when you talk about the, his works of miracles, they're much more water into wine than than healing right and so it's interesting that that is at least according to this researcher like the primary thing folks more in his time thought of him as mm-hmm. um, yeah and I wonder why that's you know not more prominent in my mind about Jesus
0: I think my experience I mean I also I, well I grew up attending a church actually um, and that's sort of my experience too was that I don't know that Jesus as a healer was necessarily emphasized in church. Um, and I wonder if that's because of, you know, the type of Protestant church that I attended and and it's more modern views on, on all of Aww. these texts. I think the, I think the key to understanding why we don't, uh, think about Jesus as much as a healer nowadays is the tendency to question these kinds of healing narratives that we're going to see by modern audiences. Um, They are going to seem fantastical, and especially in the context of modern medicine, they're going to seem silly.
1: That makes sense. So it's almost like because we're so bought into science and modern medicine that we can't highlight these healing practices uh, because they... Well, they don't tell the story we want to tell. They are fostering the belief we want to foster.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and I think it's important to realize that that's, you know, my experience growing up in like a white Protestant church in the United States. But, I mean, I knew of other people's churches where those stories were highlighted, especially evangelical churches.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and this is very... Um, I'm sure my, my impression of this is very based on stereotypical, like, portrayals of it, but also, you know, almost that the big Baptist revival healing tent kind of moments. Yeah. right? That, like, I think, to your point about this feeling nonsensical, to, like, the modern science brought in brain, like, that is how I was, like, taught to think of those kind of church moments
0: we are thoroughly modern subjects you and i yeah interesting (laughs) okay um so i i want to re-emphasize the idea that jesus is being jesus is sort of in competition with asclepius so those asclepian temples that we talked about in the cult of asclepius that we discussed in episode one they were still prominent at the time when the gospels were written And indeed, the followers who wrote about Jesus Christ's life seem to describe him in ways that compare and contrast with Asclepius. And this is what scholar of religion, Frances Flannery, argues in in an article. And she writes, Early Christian writers interested in shaping a collective memory of Jesus as healer would have been unavoidably familiar with the traditions associated with Asclepius who was by far the most popular Greek and Roman god of healing. So, according to Francis Flannery, the writers of the gospel, quote, "...intentionally constructed the figure of Jesus as healer and divine doctor by by contesting the reputation of Asclepius." The gospels establish that, unlike Asclepius, only Jesus can routinely heal the sick and raise even the dead as if they were sleeping without attachment to a physical place, without fees and regardless of purity boundaries.
1: Hearing Jesus described about not being about being associated with a place or like the request for donations is uh, amusing. I just need to name that first. Um, Yeah.
0: (laughs) I I think that's a really important point is that these stories, the gospels come out of a time when Christianity wasn't an established institutionalized thing.
1: Um, And it, I, so there's two things that I was thinking of as you were reading that quote. One is, um, just coming back to what we talked about in the first episode too, like people are just people (laughs) like, um, they took, you know, they thought Asclepides healed. So they made systems around it and ways to make money around it. And then (laughs) that obviously was developed around Jesus as well. So like, once again, just these cycles of, we develop the same things over and over again and think they're brand new um but the other thing i was thinking of is like it almost feels like again still almost this modern battle of like or what i recognize as modern in the sense of like uh i think the last time we talked about how hippocrates you know this writing was throwing shade at the supernatural healers Oh, and, and we're now come back to it though right <laughs> and now they're like this they're saying like these modern or these early christian writers were like, haha! Look what well, we can do supernatural style. We don't even need your like actual body explanations, <laughs> right? Like it, it almost still feels yeah. like we we're starting over the same concept. Four hundred years later, it just mm-hmm. you know this is where the other side starts winning again.
0: Yeah, and you know what's amazing is that the that the battle is going to wage on and on and on. Actually, what? it's going to continue. I can't possibly we're going to be still going to hear about it again in yeah. later episodes. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, so when we talk about Jesus Christ as a healer and, and to your point about him being a particular type of healer, we have to think about Jesus as an exorcist. So according to theologian Zorad Dubey, Jesus was an exorcist. Um, and here is how he describes uh, Jesus's healing in comparison to Hippocrates. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus did not perform surgery a skill associated with the Hippocratic dogmatic healers. Equally, they're
1: dogmatic. Yes, they're
0: apparently dogmatic. Equally, he did not perform external bodily observations of his patients before healing them, a skill that was was associated with the Hippocratic physicians. Instead, Jesus' healing power involved exercising the demonic forces causing sickness. Spiritual authority or power over evil spirits is an important aspect associated with his ability to heal. Okay, so I also want to, to give you the perspective of a theologian who talks about Jesus as Jesus's exorcisms from the point of view of someone who's maybe not a demonic realist like us. Uh, this is theologian Andries van Erde talking about these healings, these exorcisms. And he says, those who were healed by Jesus were people who had been traumatized. Imperial exploitation and religious codes that rendered people impure led to f- conflict within families. The result of this was trauma and demonization, which is ascribing adversity to external forces called demons. So for Van their demons are basically metaphorical.
1: So this is where we really see demons as being the mental health specific aspect Absolutely. rather than the more um, other physical health aspect.
0: Yes. Right. Okay. So, so Van Erde is definitely emphasizing demons as trauma. Mm-hmm. So here's, he continues on writing, people lost their land, their subsistence. If they succumbed to disease, they were cast out of households and communities. And so in that context, healing of trauma and exorcism of demons were two sides of the same coin. Jesus, the revolutionary healer was an exorcist.
1: And in, in some ways, I mean, we were saying some of the same things about hippocrates in the sense that he was thinking about the social harm of folks who had something like epilepsy yeah um but this is kind of taking it even further right that's not taking what we can name as very biological like physical disease but like any kind of trauma too of like being kicked out of your community and and things of that nature
0: i mean i think that i think that the stories that we get of jesus best highlight this kind of community-level healing um, that is, I think, important in mental health, and Mm -hmm. that is ignored, I think, in modern-day psychiatry to a large extent, which focuses on the pathologies of the individual.
1: And not how they're interacting with their community. Right. Which makes a lot of sense, you know, even when, in my initial, like, what do you know about Jesus is... It was, you know, caring about them at least among us, right? So this very yep. much fits in line with what we do know about Jesus, even if the actual exorcism part is downplayed. <laughs> which I get because in modern, in my modern brain, I hear exorcism and I think horror movie, not mental health practitioner.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So let's let's think about, I, or I want to look closely now at the Gospel of Mark, okay. which is one of the Gospels. It's the earliest written one. Um, It's an account of Jesus Christ's life, uh, you know, from his birth to his death, and it was written decades after he actually died, and it was written by a man named John Mark. John Mark was associated with Peter. Peter was one of Jesus's closest disciples. So this is perhaps how this ends up having some potential historic accuracy to it. Um, Theologian Michael R. Lacona has published an article in which he argues that we can think of the gospel as Mark as just about as reliable as the other texts that we have from this time that we consider historical. And so most notably, he emphasizes that Mark had a very high quality historical source in Peter. Lacona writes the case for Mark containing Peter's eyewitness testimony is quite strong. Not only was Mark in a good position to receive accurate reports of Jesus, Jesus's teachings would have been quite easily recalled by his disciples even decades later. Jesus was a traveling teacher who may have had no more than a dozen or so sermons, some of which he taught countless times. He sent his disciples out to teach what they heard him say What they had heard Jesus teach, they now taught themselves countless times. They went out in twos, providing the opportunity for one to correct the other when the integrity of Jesus' teachings had been compromised. And they returned and heard Jesus teach even more. After his post-resurrection departure, they continued teaching for decades. So what we are getting here then is certainly... A particular account written decades after but it's also part of a longer oral tradition
1: so for anyone whose eyes glaze over a little bit when you go into long quotes that was basically just in defense of why we want to use mark as our resource here and why it is probably as good as we could get as close to the happenings of the time hmm okay. so um,
0: one more thing that I want to talk about this oral tradition is that um, even though I'm interacting with Mark as a written text, um, that's not really how people would have originally interacted with the Gospel of Mark. So scholar of religion Richard A. Horsley uh, wrote about writing and literacy during Jesus Christ's lifetime. And he shows that writing would have functioned very differently than it does for us today. Today, we are rooted in a strong tradition of print publishing and digital dissemination of texts. But Horsley describes how the Gospel of Mark spread throughout Galilee to other places and became very popular among the early Christians. In particular, most of them would not have read the Gospel of Mark, rather they would hear it performed to them orally by someone who is practiced in the art of storytelling. Um, So Horsley argues that the Gospel of Mark had strong resonance among the populace and that was why it was eventually adopted by church authorities as part of the canon of the New Testament. So it would have been read by people who, who were going to also go out and tell the story publicly, mm-hmm. and that's how most people would have encountered it. And then it eventually became part of the what is called today the New Testament for uh, the Bible. Got it. So we're going to look at a, f- a few different passages in Mark. Um, just to kind of explore the way they talk about demons and exorcism. So the first one will introduce Jesus's ability to drive away demons. And then the second two stories will tell Jesus, will show us Jesus actually using his exorcism skills. Okay. So in chapter three of the gospel of Mark, Jesus appoints his disciples. So this is what verses 13 through 16 says. He went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he wanted and they came to him he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles that they might be with him and he might send them forth to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So okay. then,
1: so he's named his, 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 uh, his posse. All right. <laughs> <laughs> his demon driver outers, his yes. mental health team. There we go. His, yeah, his modern kind day, of. his team of counselors.
0: <laughs> Jesus then heads home and he's met by crowds who have heard stories of him, um, and the crowd includes his opponents who accuse Jesus of being a demon himself this is verses 20 through 22 now he came home again the crowd gathered making it impossible for them even to eat when jesus's relatives heard of this they set out to seize him for they said he is out of his mind the scribes who had come from Jer- Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the demon or and by the prince of demons he drives out demons so in other words, they say,
1: why would a demon drive out the other demons? Oh,
0: well, that's what Jesus is going to
1: say here in a second. Oh, oh, but, <laughs> I it. I it.
0: but yeah, basically they say he is a demon because he can drive them out. But Jesus goes ahead and explains to them why that can't be in verses 23 through 30. Summoning them, he, be- he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kin- kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided itself against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. That is the end of him. But no one can enter a strong man's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Amen, I say to you, all sins and all blasphemies that people utter will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an everlasting sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit.
1: So basically this is the, you know, darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that kind of vision. Um, But the other thing I heard in there was the tying them up first, right? So it's almost like what's actually happening if a demon is possessing you is that they are they are uh ty- i don't know another word for it but you know um i mean i do know other words they just aren't coming to my brain right now but they're they're mobilizing you as the person right to take yeah. that over right? yeah
0: um yeah i think
1: some people could definitely describe their mental health
0: that way that's true let me let me give you the take the an interpretation of a theologian named Justin Campbell, who talks about this story. So he writes the heart of Jesus's mission is not to confront and crush Satan, but to be confronted by Satan and transform him by the power of divine embrace. This is the opposite of oppressive power that binds. It is rather the liberating power that frees. So just like what you just said, this is the embrace that cries from the cross, forgive them father for they know not what they do. The meek and pitiful one who offers his other cheek to the violent aggressor is the victor of the exchange. That this could be so is the very mystery of the resurrected life itself and is foolishness to the world. It is the paradox of the cross. So let's talk about Mark 9. So okay. our, our, in this story, we're actually going to see a, an exorcism. And this one uh, discusses. Yep, let's go. This one discusses a boy who is described as being possessed by a spirit. Um, It's worth noting that the word spirit in the Gospel of Mark is somewhat ambiguous because...
1: Is it a demon? Isn't it a demon? We don't know.
0: Exactly. Okay. I mean, what exactly did John Mark mean when he used this word? Not actually the English word spirit, but in fact, that's been translated. (laughs) Hold Um, part there. (laughs) But the Greek term which i think is pronounced pneuma um would have would have been ambiguous as to whether or not we are talking about an entity like you know as we imagine demons or whether we were talking about something like the breath the the workings of the body something like that Okay. Right. so it is it is a bit ambiguous and it's been interpreted in different ways throughout history but anyway now that i've thrown that huge wrench into the I know, whole thing I,
1: was like, I feel like you just tangented all over me then.
0: yeah right it is kind of a hard tangent to deal with um so to who to listeners who are actually familiar with the concept of epilepsy this boy's condition is going to sound remarkably like epilepsy which
1: is the same thing we were talking about with hippocrates right and yeah divine exactly exactly divine. so seizure
0: What's <laughs> Uh, on the sacred disease. Yeah, there we go. Yes. <laughs> sacred disease, not so divine the divine disease. The people in the story, including Jesus, discuss the boy's condition as if it has something to do with, with you know the possession of a spirit or the existence of a spirit. And so they attempt to exercise it. So here is what Mark 9, 4, verses 14 through 29 say. And when Jesus Christ and some of his disciples came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And Jesus asked them, What are you disputing with them? And one person from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes stiff. And I told your disciples so that they would cast it out, but they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, "O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and in the water into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. But Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When Jesus came into the house, his disciples began asking him privately, Why is it that we could not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything except prayer.
1: Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So, I mean, not my words, these are Hippocrates, but is <laughs> this the kind of charlatan Hippocrates was talking about when he said, this is in the head, not in the supernatural?
0: I mean, I think we have to... <laughs> we have to kind of Is think the Hippocrates right?
1: throwing shade directly at Jesus or not? <laughs>
0: well Well it was I mean, in the future. At all, yeah, so right. I know not like, directly. Preemptively throwing shade at Jesus, I guess. All right. Um le- let me just read that part again from On the Sacred Disease. Um <clears throat> this is what Hippocrates are already
1: going there, or you just happen to have that ready in response to me, because I'm impressed.
0: You are just reading my mind. Yes. I had it ready to go, and now I'm going to uh read it off for you. So um, <clears throat> one of the Hippocrates wrote, they who first referred this malady to the gods appear to me to have been just such persons as the conjurers, purificators, mountebanks, and charlatans now are, who give themselves out for being excessively religious and as knowing more than other people. Such persons then, using the divinity as a pretext and screen of their own ability to afford, afford any assistance, have given out the, that the disease is sacred. So I don't think Hippocrates is saying exactly the same thing in that Jesus isn't really saying that the gods caused this, although possibly demons are gods within uh, Greek tradition.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you also have the, like, it's all about belief. So you didn't believe hard enough?
0: Yeah, that's the part that I think is, for me, kind of concerning, right? That, like, we're setting up this dynamic where if somebody isn't cured of epilepsy, then is then are they to blame for not having well, like, believed yeah, enough in gets, Jesus?
1: To me, it's the same that what you were just saying about the blame the gods, right? Like it still is about
0: mm-hmm.
1: blaming somebody if it doesn't magic or if it doesn't make it go away.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, you said magically but like, know, you know, honestly, that's kind of an accurate, you did take it back, but I kind of <laughs> want to say like, that is kind of what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Is is at least from our perspective something that we would call magic. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> anyway, I, I do also want to problematize this kind of easy rejection of this story, though. Um it might seem like like Mark just doesn't know what epilepsy is and is making up this story about epilepsy, but but I think we should actually read this as as Mark knowing what epilepsy is is in a medical sense like
1: well if they were calling it the 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 sacred disease then it seems like lots of people would know what it was definitely a big deal
0: definitely right like there is a long history of knowing about epilepsy so um this is what a theologian named annette uh, weisenreiter writes about mark and the other gospel writers um she notes that they use the same terminology for epileptic seizures that medical texts at the time would have used so she writes, linguistically, these descriptions are completely consistent with the manner of speaking found in medical texts. The precise naming of the symptoms not only shows that the authors must have been familiar with the symptoms of the illness. The list, which is mentioned repeatedly by Mark in particular, also indicates that the text's readers were able to classify the symptoms and assign them to an illness.
1: Interesting. I guess I'm not going to lie that even just thinking about there being medical texts at the time kind of like threw my brain for a sec, but
0: well, we've seen one, right? On the have, sacred right? disease. Well, I was, was going to
1: say, I was, was going to ask actually, like these texts at the time would have been like the three hundred year down or four hundred year down version of of building off of on the sacred disease and like Hippocrates style texts, correct? Theoretically, or from the best of our knowledge, I should say.
0: I would say that you know, 400 years later, there's even more activity, I guess, but um, but still, yeah, generally I mean,
1: saying these are this would be something caused in the brain.
0: Oh, are are yes, I think there are still physicians. I th- I think we can safely assume that there are, are still, at the time of Jesus, physicians who are going to argue that this is a bodily ailment that has natural corporeal causes that have nothing to do with the religious elements of other people, right? Yeah. Like that other people are talking about. Um <clears throat> but but it seems as though Mark has those people in mind when he makes these stories. Like mm-hmm. he's not actually he's not ignorant of yeah, their arguments. He knows that, we've, right. we've been
1: arguing about whether or not it's brain humidity or god even scenarios. Exactly.
0: Okay, so our last story uh oh, I'm tra- sorry,
1: to go back for a second though. Yeah. That almost like thinking about that makes it really interesting cuz it's almost mm-hmm. like he's saying, "Yes, we know this one's a hard disease." Mhm. And like but Jesus can still do it, but like his disciples can't even do it, and that's just how good Jesus is. Yep, yep, exactly. Interesting. I kind
0: of wonder if uh, you know, if that if epilepsy was a a disease that you know hippocratic physicians and maybe even the temples had a real trouble a lot of problems with because yeah they like didn't they were know able what to, to do help for either it and so yeah. to show
1: that jesus could, jesus could like exercise that one yeah woo. yeah man Them, that's that's like really yeah exactly
0: okay. um fascinating that's that's at least how i take it um okay so <clears throat> now i'm going to tell you another exorcism story from mark and this one is the exorcism of the demoniac of Gerasene. And demoniac is a fantastic word that you should definitely incorporate into your active vocabulary. Absolutely. It means simply someone who is possessed by a demon.
1: Well, there's some people I'd like. I'm going to, to start <laughs> going around calling them demoniacs for sure. <laughs>
0: okay. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, so they came to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus Christ got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. The man lived among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart and the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue the man. Constantly, night and day, He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, the man ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had already been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking him, What is your name? And he said to Jesus, My name is Legion for we are many. And legion begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now there was a large herd of pigs feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. In coming out, the unclean spirits entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the countryside. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had previously had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to leave their region, And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging him that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was
1: amazed. Okay, there was a lot in there. So So the first thing I noticed is like, in the first story of exorcism, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like this is already someone who came for help. Right. And he was already talking to the disciples. So it sounds like there was a kerfuffle, but like, it wasn't an already really like bad situation that he came upon. Right. Mm. Like, even if it was like a to do, but in this one, like this sounds like a person that has been like, just horribly treated like for, I mean, I'm sure they would have said it was like safety and whatnot, but like, I mean, that description of being chained in the tombs, like, whoa, that is rough.
0: Right. Yeah. They, the townspeople are clearly aware, have clearly marked that man as mad. Yeah.
1: And like, we didn't just say like, go away. We were like, you must be chained in a cemetery. That's, that's intense.
0: So actually, that's a really interesting thing. Let me, let me tell you what theologian Justin Campbell says about this story. Uh, We heard it from him earlier in this episode. But Campbell writes, the forces of darkness and the strong man Satan must be bound and subdued before the healing work can be done. This is arguably what the townspeople of Jerasa attempt but fail to do by binding and shackling and what Jesus is able to do by virtue of the divine power he wields.
1: So this gets back to the darkness can't drive out darkness kind of thing, right? So treating this person terribly is never going to be what... Mm -hmm helps Mm -hmm. solve solve this for him. This is really interesting because I can, I mean, obviously I see that, right? I can also see from these townspeople's perspective is like, and you killed all our pigs, which (laughs) is like their (laughs) livelihood and their... Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I think it's also a story of like, who are we saving? (laughs) Because I'm also kind of like, oh, did you also starve a bunch of people with the lack of pigs? I don't know. It's a great question.
0: So, I want to go back also to theologian Andries van Erde and he he gives us a nice uh, interpretation of Jesus' exorcisms. He writes, the deeds of the liberating Jesus can today, in the context of modern society, be defined as empowerment healings. Jesus empowered people who succumbed to stress and enabled them to survive. He brought a renewed sense of meaning to people's lives. Jesus's healings were not miracles in the sense of supernatural interventions in the physical world. They signified God's engagement with the social social world and lives of people. A miracle is not God's periodic interference with a closed natural order. It is rather the permanently hidden, uninterrupted heartbeat of the natural. It is present for those with the eyes and ears of faith. So
1: how would you paraphrase that one?
0: I would I would say that Van Erde uh, sees, and and I think the story of the demoniac of Gerasene is a good example for what Van Erde is arguing, which is that, in essence, Jesus empowers the the man and and brings him into his community of disciples at least for momentarily, and in that way makes him feel human, loved, mm-hmm. respected, mm-hmm. Um, and in that way. Provide some healing for him.
1: I was thinking about him then sending him back to his people, right? Like not saying you can't join us where you felt that maybe love and connection, right? You need to go back and bring out your people. And, and I keep thinking like, Oh, well that seems kind of cruel. How's that person going to do in that community? And then I'm like, Oh, or is the moral better be nice to me or Jesus will come drown your pigs again. (laughs) I,
0: I don't take it that way. I take it <clears throat> as perhaps a bit of a naive thing, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that like, maybe what actually happens after the story goes is that they return right back to the cycle of violence. Um, but, but I think we're supposed to assume that he goes back and that is the way that the community heals, right? That he stays within the community. He now teaches them about the acceptance that Jesus showed him. hmm and that acceptance transforms the community itself.
1: Yeah. And, and thinking of a community that's willing to chain some weapon of the twos because they think they're mad. Like, yeah, we're really saying that that whole community does need help and, and thinking about how right. to approach and support and and, and um, include people differently.
0: Yeah. And and I mean, this is like now to go back to Foucault and wrap this discussion up. Um, you know, I think this is the demoniac of Gerasene is a really great uh, story for Foucault's point in that I think we can really see this story and say that Jesus did seem to go and try to listen to mad people, to people who other people dismissed and rejected Um, and that that in doing so he may have actually provided some healing and that may have been a very important thing for him to do Mm -hmm. for that man which which might suggest that Foucault has kind of a point.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, again, like, I think it just gets back to this idea of, like, what's the individual and what's the community role in, like, this practice of mental health? Hmm.
0: Um, <clears throat> so, I I think we, you know, in interpreting, in thinking about whether, you know, we, we accept what Foucault is saying, we have to acknowledge that... Um, that even in, in even before the rise of psychiatry there's still forces of humanity forces of society that are out there dismissing and and um <clears throat> excluding people who are deemed mad uh, psychiatry isn't the first to do that
1: mm. yeah and so you know this is easily thinking of like this as the equivalent of sending them off to the sanitarium like to get their shock therapy you know try Chain them in the tombs um, Yeah, yeah right, right. Kind of idea of okay, mental health care.
0: So now I'm really excited uh, to continue this discussion because obviously the the tradition of Christianity and and faith healing and things like that certainly didn't stop with Jesus. It has set off an entire two millennia long discussion about these issues, and we're going to dig into certain parts of that uh in this season.
1: It's interesting how pieces like when I think about modern religion, mm-hmm. right, there are a lot you mean of mean
0: modern Christianity. Yes, thank you. Thank okay.
1: You. When I think about modern Christianity, there are a lot of those practices like on both sides that I can still see, which is what's so interesting because yeah. like I do think of and have seen a lot of like ostracization, right, from the church for Things that could have been mental illness, but also behavior, all the things like I I feel like I have a a strong feeling of that as, Mm. as a difficult, like, well, I will, uh, as a cruel tool that has often been used in the church. And I also see many people who get their communities from Mm -hmm. the church,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Many people whose mental health is absolutely tied directly to their participation in a, uh, in a religious community.
1: Right. And like <clears throat> the idea that that's where, you know, that's, who's bringing you meals. If something happens, you know, in your family and that's where you can open up. I mean, for so long talking to someone in religion, I think is the closest to therapy. A lot of people ever got. Sure. Um, and still do <clears throat> today. Um, and, and so it's really interesting that I see that as a tool for both sides of what's happening. in this yeah. story, Right. The people yeah. who kick them out and the people who are inclusive and provide that community that helps support mental health.
0: Yep. I think both, I think, I think just, just like perhaps we have a, a love hate relationship with psychiatry today. Apparently we could have had a love hate relationship with an
1: exorcist. Uh can't wait to hear about where we go. Exercising <laughs> more well, demons from here.
0: We're going to talk about more exorcism and we're going to continue to talk about the, uh, Christian tradition of exorcism and healing. um, When we talk next time about St. Jerome who lived about 300 years after Jesus and played a major role in the early Christian church.
1: All right. Sounds interesting. All right. Uh, Watch out for demons y'all
0: watch out for demoniacs too. Oh yeah. All right. Before we end this episode, I want to let our listeners know that if they go to nsubdarelu.com or Google NeuroDescent, they can find a list of all of the resources that we use in this uh, podcast. We use open access scholarship uh, so that you can actually read any of the sources that we talk about in this episode. Uh, if you go there, you can also subscribe to the podcast and find other materials. So we uh, hope you'll check that out. And until next time,